What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what? It's a new month. Is it? Yeah, it is. And I'm thinking to myself that we should probably have something like a month called Support Our Supporters. Support Our Supporters? Support Our Supporters. We've got some people who support our show. Yeah. And I want to show them some love. Okay. Yeah. So we've got someone who is regularly supporting our show, who's the industry buffet himself, Jason mm-hmm. Furman mm-hmm. from Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick Dog Quip. Einswick. Yeah. I know you're a fan of Jason's equipment. You know what? Sometimes I get these ideas in my head. Mm-hmm. Let's go I'm with like, it. Jason, with it. I've got this idea for a tug and I want it to be this big and this round and made of leather. Yep. You got one? He goes, no, that doesn't exist, you idiot, but I can get it made. I go, do it, sir. He's pretty good like that, the old buffet, isn't he? Yeah. We should get Teespring. The buffet. The- <laughs> Teespring merch made up. (laughs) (laughs) Support the buff head. Support the buff. Yeah. But we've got people in other parts of the world that are supporting Yeah, you know who's not a buff head? Tell me. Mac Lapointe. Mac Lapointe is French for Mark. For not a buff head. Yeah, for not a buff head. And he is from? Canine Dynamics. Canine Dynamics. In Canada. Yep. Please don't slow this one down. <laughs> <laughs> so if I were in North America, that's where I'd be getting my, yeah. my working dog equipment from. He's got a great array of gear as well. It does. Yeah. Yep. And he's a very generous guy. Yeah. Mm. You know who else is a supporter of the show? That would have to be Kindred Canine. Mm. Mel Benware. Our good friend Mel Benware. She has got to be one of the best travel to your home, train the dog in your home dog trainers. Absolutely. In the area that she's in, which Richmond, is- Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> Or Ashland, Virginia. She comes from Ashland, Virginia, but she services all the area around there. She's been a great support for the show and also a great support for the International Association of Canine Professionals. That's right. We are proud members of as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're in Australia and you need dog equipment, Mm -hmm. Jason Furman. Einswick Dog dog Equip. Einswick Dog Equip. Einswick. If you're in North America, you need working dog equipment, Mark LaPointe. (laughs) (laughs) Canine Dynamics. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and if you're in Ashland, Virginia, yep. or Richmond, Virginia. Yep. In that general area. Yep. And you need pet dog training. Melanie Benway. Melanie Benway. Kindred canine. Kindred canine. Yep. That's it. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today on Skype, joining us from Buffalo, New York, I'm assuming you're still there, is Mr. Tyler Mudo. Tyler, how are you, sir? Doing well. How are you guys? Welcome back, mate. It's such an honor and privilege to always have you on the show and make time for us. This is your third time. Mm. Third time, yeah? Yeah, third time. I think so. Yeah, I think you were part of the 100th episode that we did. Oh, so fourth. Mm Mm-hmm. So, there yeah, possibly go. the fourth. I think that was the second time, um, the 100th episode. Someone will correct yeah. us. Someone yeah, knows. Mate. Emma Murdoch, how many I times has Tyler been on? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> she'll know. Hey, mate, we haven't heard from you in a while. 
you're going kind of dark a little bit. We don't see much of you on social media. Haven't seen any content getting around. What's been happening in Tyler's world? Because every time we put up a poll of who should we get on the show, your name pretty much Top comes five. up. Yeah, every time. Mm. So here we are. What's been happening? Not a lot, man. You know, I've been doing a lot with my website, Consider the Dog. So I've been putting some content on there. But yeah, I've been kind of laying low and, and sort of enjoying it for the time being. I've been really trying to focus on actually bringing other people into the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, even at my training center, I'm really, I've really handed a lot of it off to my staff and I just kind of focus on being there for support when they need me. And I'm just sort of enjoying life. Otherwise I do a lot of stock market trading these days. So that's, that's right. That's I like saw my it. mornings almost every day. Yep. So yeah, that's kind of that. Yeah, man, that's it. That's it really. Nothing new. I'm just, in, I'm enjoying not being in the spotlight for a little bit. Yeah. It's interesting thing, the transition that you make when you you know, I, I touched on it last week when we were talking to Brent. We had Brent Dry on the show. And uh, I touched on it a little bit. It's an interesting transition that you go through, and it's a real struggle. I don't know if you're finding this, Tyler, but I did at the start, is when I was very much a hands-on dog trainer and I was doing it all the time, and that's all I literally did was train dogs pretty much six to seven days a week. I had my own business. I was doing boarding and training, private lessons, group classes, and it was just around the clock, just training dogs, training dogs, training dogs, training dogs. And it was just an abundance of training dogs. Suddenly, I made the transition into business owner slash general manager of a group of companies. And then I started to get taken away from that sort of thing. And it's not that I sort of got taken away from it. It was just the natural progression of where my life was going with what I had to do. Nonetheless, it's like ripping a Band-Aid off. I mean, you know that it's going to come, but you're kind of wincing at the fact that all this is happening to you. And then you're thinking, am I still going to be involved? Because I was very much in the spotlight at that time. I was very much relevant with training dogs. And now I'm sort of in the back end, directing new people. I don't know. I found it hard for a period of time. Now I'm much more at ease with it because my life is quite tumultuous with the group of companies I'm running at the moment, but I still have time to get in and have a little bit of a hands-on experience if I want, train students if I want. But mostly these days, it's more about guiding and setting up and directing other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, my transition from like being hands-on to being more in the background was really, really slow and gradual. So it wasn't um, so much that. What was more difficult for me is I'm actually not a good manager. Like that's not my strong point. Managing people is not, A, it's not something I really want to do and I'm just not very good at it. So that was like the challenging part was just doing that. And then eventually I realized, you know what, I need to actually hire somebody to really be doing the management end. So now I have a woman named Amy who's just amazing and she basically runs the training center. I'm there to provide guidance and direction and support, but she does most of the day-to-day and she's the one working with the staff and making sure everybody knows where they're supposed to be and when and what they need to be doing. And she's way better at it than me. So that's made it a lot easier because yeah, the the management, that was difficult for me just because I'm not good at it. And historically for me, the way I've always been, even going back to grade school is like the things that I enjoy, I get really good at. And if I don't enjoy something or if I'm not good at it, it's like, it just creates a lot of frustration for me. And I I get really avoidant about Mm. things. Mm. And I think that's the way management was for me. I just sucked at it. So I just was avoiding some of the more challenging aspects of it and just not doing a great job. Yeah. Growth's a funny one like that. Like Mm. a, a good friend of mine, I went to school with is a builder and, um, you know, he 
It's really good and small jobs and super high quality work. And then, you know, that leads to more work. He puts on more staff. And one day he told me, he goes, mate, I realize I'm not a builder anymore. Like I am just a businessman doing these things. And his like quality of work isn't there because he's not doing it. He's employing all these people. And he ended up stripping the whole company right back and getting back on the tools and sort of turned his quite big company into a very small company again, just because he didn't like being in charge of people. He actually liked being a builder. That was what he wanted to do. And then he built it up again with a manager in place. So he is on the tools at just one of the sites and you wouldn't know it. You think that he's just like a, you know, he's just a foreman there. Like they don't realize he owns the whole company, just hated being in charge of a company, Mm. like being on the tools. Yeah. There's an old moral, and I won't go through the whole thing because you can look it up on the internet, and um, it would do it more justice than me trying to bumble through it. But the philosophy is there's a guy catching fish, and you know some guy is watching him and suggests to him that if he puts on other people, then he could buy a bunch more boats, which eventually he does, and then he creates this successful fishing company. But the moral of the story was the guy is suggesting, you know, like if you do all this, then you can live your dream. And the guy's dream was just to go out fishing. Mm. So it was one of those things Mm -hmm. that sort of goes full circle. And I know a lot of dog trainers, you know, and as Pat was saying, his colleague with with the building side of things, some people that is their dream. You know, they're living their dream. They just, Mm -hmm. sometimes they don't realize it at the moment. They're sort of thinking, oh, well, you know, I could do this and I could do that. But they don't realize that they're living the best days of their life right where they are right now. Yeah. You know, interestingly, the first time I heard that story, I know exactly the story you're talking about. It was, I believe, from Brother Christopher from the Monks of New Skeet. Mm. I think he's the one that first told me that story. So Yeah, right. I've only heard it out of the mouths of dog trainers, interestingly. There you go. Um, yeah, you know, that's kind of it. And, yeah, I mean, the thing, though, is I actually don't – I don't really want to go back to the day-to-day. Like, I, I'm not, you know, doing private lessons and stuff like that. Like, my staff is really handling all of that. I don't miss that at all, really, which is interesting. And I have no problem talking about this because it's, you know, it's not like anything that I, I keep hitting. But uh, last year, about a year ago, I was actually dealing with some pretty serious like mental health stuff. And I actually took a few months off of work. If you remember, probably at conference, I think I told everybody like mm-hmm. I was coming into conference. Everybody was like, man, you look so relaxed. I was like, yeah, I'm coming off of like two months of like sabbatical. I was burning out really, really hard. I had to like really take some time and figure out what I wanted to do with myself and how I wanted my the future of my career to be going. And you know, I realized I, I didn't really miss, you know, I didn't want to go back to doing private lessons all day. I, I didn't miss that aspect of it. I enjoyed dogs, but some of the day-to-day of being a dog trainer just wasn't suiting my personality. It was causing a lot of just internal friction, you know, and same with, you know, managing the business. But I love, you know, dogs. I love dog behavior. So that's when I really started focusing myself more on uh, consider the dog where I can work with other contributors who I think are talented and I can really, you know, things that interest me, I can sort of showcase and, and be a part of, and, you know, it gives me more flexibility. My big, you know, like things really changed when I had kids. Cause like all my priorities changed once I had kids, you know, and really it was like, I wanted more time. I wanted flexibility with my time. So if my kids had events or they needed a day off of school or whatever, that I could be there so that my wife could focus on her career as well. And, um, I was at a place with my business where I, I could have some mobility and do that. And then, you know, with what I, you know, I've, I've talked about what I do with the stock market. That gives me some some extra freedom as well. So that's just kind of been like my my drive is more about now my family. And like I always say, the only thing you can't make more of is time. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like getting some of the mental health things that I was dealing with under control. And that was very enlightening and 
you know, getting basically a diagnosis for some stuff that I had been dealing with my whole life that I didn't quite realize. And it's a lot of self-reflection and, and all of that, you know, everything that comes along with that. So I really enjoyed training dogs while I was doing it. But as you say, growth is a weird thing. And, and you sort of, you know, I, I still love dog behavior, but I don't miss doing like private lessons. I love teaching people about dog behavior. I love coaching my staff. I love when I can help them with a private lesson. I can, you know, sit in on a lesson and work through with them the problems they might be having with a client, but I don't miss being the one hands-on doing it anymore. And I still get hands-on if, if, you know, one of my staff needs some assistance with a dog. Like just a couple of weeks ago, I was out actually just walking my dog and a few of my staff were out walking a few of the dogs we had in board and train. And one of them is quite reactive. He can walk fine alongside other dogs, but if you then encounter a new dog he hasn't seen before, he gets a little nutty. And so when he saw me coming with Lobo, he started firing up. And I knew that Barb, um, who was the trainer, had been having some issues. You know, he wasn't really responding to some of the typical stuff that we would do. And it was just a perfect opportunity. So I had, you know, one of the other women that was out there just grab Lobo from me. And I grabbed him and I just worked with him a little bit and figured out, you know, what direction we needed to go. And then coached Barb through it. She handled him a little bit. And then things ended up going pretty well from that point on. So I'll still jump in and do stuff like that. But, you know, I just, I like the freedom and flexibility that, that my life has now. And I've always kind of been that way. I've always liked, you know, not being too bogged down with a rigid uh, structure in my life, you know. Mm-hmm. I kind of identify a little bit. I've thought this way for a long time watching people in the industry that dog trainers can, well, in every industry, I think this probably exists, is that it can be a bit like a teacher stream. Like, you know, when you start out, you're teaching grade school or kindergarten, you know, and it's hard and you're, you're, you're in the weeds every day and you're taking on the challenges. But then eventually, you know, you go to like tertiary education and then ultimately it sort of gets to like, I think most people's goal. And this is, I remember thinking this of you, Glenn, when I first met you, like, oh, that dude's the professor. Like he's training other people to do this stuff and isn't on the tools every day. Like your professor of economics is not out there running companies. He's just like throwing hot tips at people and has gone through all that. And it's kind of a career progression. And it's really for us, you know, we're not professors. We don't have like a ranks like that. So it's quite, everybody's at their own pace and doing it within their own sort of thing. And then you do see people, like I say with my friend building, but you do see people getting back on the tools. Like you see people, mm-hmm. like they go through that and they get to the top and then they go, no, like I'm going to buy a new fucking bite suit that fits and get back into working dogs every day because I do miss that. And now this is running and but they're not developing the dog end to end. They're just exactly as you say, mate, just throwing out the hot tips. Like, Hey, like here's a, here's a plug for that gap that you've got now carry on get when you find another one try and plug it yourself using that same technique if it doesn't work come to me again and we see what else we can do to fit into there Mm. yeah you're right i think that having spent a long time doing the same thing over and over with uh dog training pat and i were talking about this the other day about having negative feedback loops in as a dog experiencing it but often i see trainers experiencing their own negative feedback loop as well like thinking you know, here I am with a booked out couple of weeks of doing the same thing over and over again. I'm not really doing anything other than the same sort of thing, you know, teaching a dog not to pull on lead, teaching a dog not to do this. And for some people, you know, don't get me wrong, this is very exciting for them and I'm not trying to downplay it. It's just when, you know, like you've done it 5,000 times, like literally 5,000 times, you're kind of thinking, is there more or is this as good as it gets? And there are times where getting involved in the bite work training side of it is great fun. That certainly breaks up the monotony because that can always, you know, there are so many little nuances with that and so many little techniques 
that you rediscover with your dog and other people's dogs and you're just thinking, wow, where did that come from and how did that manifest and how do I tackle that situation? Mm-hmm. Or there are other times with dealing with aggression, you know, like I still, and I'm not saying this is uh, to be cute or funny or anything like that, but sometimes I feel like I'm the character house where I get to choose the things that I want to do, the interesting and the complex things, and then I get to poke around with that and I've got a team of people that I can work with around me that, you know, we can all sort of sit down and talk about it and diagnose it and have a look at it. And now they're starting to do it themselves, you know, like I've got a senior trainer here that works with Mikana quite closely, you know, and she's really starting to grow her wings in, a, in the training industry. You know, she's taking on more complex cases. She's reaching into things that, whereas before she didn't have the confidence to do it. And it's lovely to see. I love watching, you know, some of the new trainers and Pat's been coaching jazz throughout the years watching her grow and her growth in the industry. I mean, she's come such a long way in such a short time. You know, those sort of things are really wonderful. So having the involvement in your staff and seeing some of the younger people coming up and the newer people coming into the industry and watching them starting to make their progressions, you can't help but not be impressed and think, you know, this is this is what we're all working towards is protecting an industry, growing it and watching these new people up and coming and preserving it, not only preserving it, but making it better again. Yeah. And, you know, um, two things really, I mean, one is just to kind of go off what you're just saying, it's been very liberating the sort of transition from like, Hey, look at me to like, Hey, look at this other person and how great they're doing Mm. the sort of removal of your own ego from it, you know, Mm. where I think there's a point, especially when you're just starting out, especially for me, when I was building my training center, I had a pretty large, like financial burden over my head that I had to hit every week, you know what I mean? To make sure I could keep this place afloat. And so you really have this like pressure to like, you know, make yourself stand out and, you know, make sure that the money is changing hands and and so on and so forth. So it it has been very liberating. Just the other day, I think I was scrolling through Facebook and a few different other, you know, dog trainers had posted things and I just kind of put little shout outs on there like, oh, you know, really great job what you did with that dog or something like that. And, um, you know, they were newer dog trainers and, you know, they both had commented, you know, very clearly that they were very happy that I took the time to, to write that. And I was just reflecting how there was a time in my career where I, I probably wouldn't have done that because, you know, especially when you're just starting out and you start, I think even like last time I was on the show, I might've talked about how, you know, when you get to a point where you start getting notoriety, there's like a certain addiction to that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like you don't want to go back to not being in the spotlight or to, to not having people talk about you and, and the work that you're doing. And so you don't really want to be like shouting out to other people as much because you're trying to make yourself stand out, especially mm-hmm. in the day of social media. And not that I would be negative towards other people, but I might not be as comfortable with, you know, really just kind of acknowledging other people's great work. And it's just been very liberating. Like now I, I honestly, like I'm really like, I could care less if I'm ever like asked to do a seminar again. Like it just doesn't matter to me. I have been asked, I, I may do seminars again in the future that, you know, would be fine, but to not like feel that, to not feel that like drive from the inside to like want to make yourself stand out or like show that you're the best at anything. Like it's extremely liberating. And so to be in that position of being able to just sort of coach other people and focus on that and focus on helping them to shine. It's, it just suits me much better. I think I, I, you know, even as a young kid, I was never one, I was always a shy kid. I grew up with a really bad stutter. You know, a lot of people know that. So I didn't talk a lot when I was young. I was very shy. I didn't want to be the center of attention at all because generally for me, 
you know, when I was the center of attention, it was because a teacher was making me read something out loud. And then the rest of the class laughs at you when you have a stutter. So that's not a very comfortable you know, position to be in. Mm-hmm. So as I grew out of my stutter and I was able to speak publicly, it was something that was very exciting at first and it was great. And then there's that sort of addiction that comes with that of, you know, wow, this is wonderful. I don't, I got to make sure I stay in this position where people think I'm great at what I do. But it was like a temporary kind of thing. And I don't think it really suits my personality very well. I think a lot of, again, some internal friction that I was dealing with was, was born out of a lot of that stuff. I'm not a center of the room kind of person naturally when I'm in social situations. So I'm much more comfortable in this role, to be honest. And then the other thing that kind of goes along with that is, and this also ties into part of what I'm doing with trading financial markets is like a friend of mine asked me what I was doing in the stock market. He's like, you know, what's your, like, what's your goal with all this? Like, like, what do you want to do? I mean, you're an educator. Do you want to, you know, start teaching other people this? And I said, you know, honestly, I just want to get to a point where my dog training center is a hobby and not something I rely on to feed my family. Mm. That would be my ultimate goal. Because I think there's something that also, especially when I started the dog training center and I don't have all the debt now that I had when I started it, I've very aggressively paid off my debt, but when I did have a lot of debt over my head, you know, that really changes things that changes the feeling you have when you're training dogs. And then the other thing about that too, is when you're working with a client and money is changing hands, that changes the relationship a little bit when you both care about that money that's changing hands. You know, that's one of the reasons that I've always enjoyed doing um, pro bono work with local rescues where we just train the dog for free because there's no money changing hands and it's just a different dynamic you have with the foster and with the rescue. You know, sometimes we do have to charge them when we're doing board and train and stuff, but with like private lessons, we often don't. And I've always enjoyed that. That's always been something that's very important to me because it's, it's where I can, again, just sort of enjoy the process and not be worried about like, well, this person paid for X lessons and we're, we got to get this much progress done in that many lessons because they're paying for it and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, kind of being at a point in my career where I've paid a lot of my debt down and, I don't just have the income from the training center. I've got the training center. I've got consider the dog. I have, you know, what I do in my brokerage accounts where I'm not fully dependent on the income from training dogs has also been extremely liberating and just allowed me to enjoy being there again, Mm -hmm. you know, where there was a point where it was like, Oh, it was like this heavy thing. You know what I mean? This burden that I was dragging along. Yeah, man. I identify with that heavily. Something I've been sort of getting into away from dogs, like my hobby, you're trading stocks. And I'm really obsessed at the moment with kind of meditation and spirituality. And it's, that's helped me understand a lot of my driving forces and things that I would just say, like, Mm -hmm. that's bad business in the past. I would say that's bad, that's bad business. I'm not doing that. But now I'm beginning to understand like, oh, it, it could be good business, but that doesn't sit with me morally and ethically. And a lot of that has to do with the exchange of money for service and the quality of service you can provide. Mm. Like, for example, many years ago, like I haven't done it in a while, but when I would train dogs to sell, when I was a part of that sort of industry, is there's these opportunities that come up where people say like, you know, we need 10 dogs over a period of time and we'll pay, you know, there were some outrageous contracts, especially, you know, in Australia, because dogs are hard to sort of get, there was some really big money for the top end sort of dogs. Mm-hmm. And it was payment up front for that. And I've always kind of sat with, no, never do that because it's bad business. Dogs can die. Dogs don't turn out. Genetics is a funny thing. You just never know how it's going to roll. But I've sort of come to understand recently is that I always then knew in the like deepest back part of my brain and soul that 
once you've taken the money, you have to provide that service. And if you mm-hmm. can't get your hands on the right dog, if the dog doesn't turn out to be the right dog or mm. the training just isn't sticking, you have to not lie, but you have to make it something that it's not. And that was something that I've just have never had the capacity to, or willingness to do. Right. And so in that space, I've always sort of said, here's the dog, he's for sale. Right. And he is what he is. He may be phenomenal or he may be not that great, but he, the price is the price and you can pay it uh-huh. for this dog. And I would never have never, and will never take money up front to say, like, this is what I can provide you because maybe I can't provide you that. Like, that's a possibility. And having that niggling in the back of my mind all the time is just unacceptable to me. And like I say, it, it was a, yeah. there was a time where I would say, that's bad business. You shouldn't do that because you get yourself in a bad financial position. But I think it probably still is that. But I think the real reason I have had to avoid that is just I can't have that hanging over me. Like I can't have yeah. that. Like I have to provide this to feed my family this week. Like I just can't do that. I'd rather I'd rather go and carry fucking rocks and do like labor to feed the family and then have the passion of like, he's the dog and maybe he turns out to be worth 70K or maybe he's a, I'm lucky to give him away as a pet, right? Rather than knowing like I need to make this dog worth a certain amount of money. And those are the things yeah. that really keep you awake at night. Yeah. Oh, mate. I, mm-hmm. I'm glad that I never put my back myself into a corner like mm. that. It's been very important to me never to do that. Yeah. Like one thing I'm, I'm very like – I always reiterate to my staff is we are really big on making sure we set like very honest expectations from the outset with training programs because that's one thing I've learned. You know, there was a, a point where I was really, you know – I was learning from some people that really had a high focus on, you know, growing your business and, and how profitable you can make your business and, mm-hmm. and put, you know, making the sales and this and that. And it was a very short blip for me because it just never felt comfortable, but it was all this, you know, we can train any dog and any dog can be off leash in X amount of time and this and that. And it was like the most surefire and quickest path to having like unhappy customers, you know? And so I'm really big now on, on like, I'd rather under promise and over deliver if anything. Yeah, it's a we're, good philosophy. We're, we're like brutally honest with people going into things as, you know, what we think of, of, you know, the situation and, you know, like what they should expect coming out of training. And that's just so important to me because, yeah, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. It would be, it would be such a, a, a heavy load to bear to have that, you know. And if we're honest with people and we're upfront from the get-go and things go one way or the other, we can always sleep at night. We can always mm-hmm. say that, you know, we gave them all the information we could we would try to be very honest with them, you know, about everything they could expect so they can make a very educated decision on whether they wanted to make this investment or not. Um, you know, we'll always charge what we have to charge for our time, but we're going to be very honest about what can come from that time. And then we're not going to take it out on the dog if we're wrong. That's the issue, you know, right? Like the thing you, that happens a lot, right? Yes. When you got to smash the square peg through the round hole, when mm. you've said, mate, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. It's getting me excited. When you, at first glance, you go, yeah, yeah, this is possible. We can do that. And then if it turns out not to be, and you're like, fuck, now I have, I can't go back, mm. right? Like I'm stuck yeah. and I have to say this. And that's a position you just never want to be yeah. in. For yourself, it's bad, but for the dog, it's horrendous. Yep. Yeah. So like that goes back to like why it was so important for me to pay off my debt that I had for just, you know getting my training center started and create some other sources of revenue because now it's, it's much easier for me. I can say, you know, if the customer's really unhappy, you know, hey, how about we we cut back the price a little bit, or I, you know, I give you a partial refund, or you know, we give you some extra services because I don't have to be so worried about, you know, that bottom line and maintaining a certain profit margin all the time. And again, that's just made dog training and having the training center just so much 
less toxic for me as a person, mm-hmm. you know? And I, so it's not that I'm like, I enjoy all the other stuff I do. It's not like I only do that other stuff because I want to have that off my shoulders, but it's, it's just a nice way to give myself that sense of security. Like, uh, like what's it called? Like, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs or something mm-hmm. like that, or Haslow or whatever Maslow, the guy's yeah, name yeah. is. And, um, I don't remember what all of them are, but I think my like top one would be security. Like I, I need to have a sense of security in my life. So if my only income is coming from the training center and there's stuff like that that's coming, that creates a tremendous amount of anxiety within me. Mm-hmm. So I, I needed to get that not hanging over my head anymore, you know? Has that always been the way for you or is that since you had kids? Always. Yeah, right. Always, yeah. For me, I was opposite. Like I, I, <laughs> I could fly, I could give a shit. I used to live paycheck to paycheck. Like it was, yeah, like I, li- I can remember one time literally running out of money and having to go eat at my parents' house. <laughs> me and the guy I live with, like, oh, shit, we got no money. Just so you and, can have the extra guacamole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just being like, oh, well, like, I'll get paid again in a week. Like, you just have to be a poor person for a week. Like, this is your life now. Pat but, said that on one of our shows a, a couple of episodes ago, that he just wanted to make extra money so he didn't have to worry about the extra three bucks for extra guacamole. <laughs> <laughs> I've been laughing about that for about two weeks, just thinking about it. Really? Yeah. I think I'm pretty sure I stole that from somewhere. But anyway, yeah, like before I had kids, I, I live like that all the time. I'm like, ah, whatever. And and especially being in the army, because you know you're getting paid in two weeks anyway. So you can you can blow all your money and you can the army provides you this um this level of security that you just can't get anywhere else. Safety because net. yeah, because mm-hmm. you at the worst worst you can go and eat in the mess and they'll take that out of your next paycheck. So even if you literally have zero dollars to mm-hmm. your name, you can eat and if you do, <laughs> and you can just move back into the lines or you you've got a bed, like you can sleep in the barracks, right? Like you can and this is I think why the army attracts a lot of people like me like that, because you can literally <laughs> destroy your life and there's like a little shelter that will remain and they'll be like, Hey, it's okay. We like we'll get you through yeah. this. But then having left the army that. and having kids, I was like oh shit like this is like i cannot put myself in a position mm. where i can on a wednesday suddenly realize i have zero dollars like i that yeah. i'm thinking of a real scenario and it was because i bought something stupid i bought like a new tire for my bike that i didn't even need <laughs> and then I, <laughs> I looked at the guy i was with and i was like oh that's the end of my money like i don't have any more than that that's it it's all gone we better use the shit out of this tire because <laughs> i can't eat I couldn't imagine doing that now. Now you've got somebody else's future to provide. Well, that's right. It's responsibilities, mm-hmm. right? Like where I had yeah, no responsibilities yeah. then. Yeah. I've always had that that need for security or whatever, but kids definitely intensified it. That's for darn sure. Yeah. Kids definitely like it just changes your whole focus. You just make different decisions, you mm. know? It's interesting, mate. You're talking about like business coaching that you got that was like aggressive and, and that sort of stuff. And it, I feel like there's a balance of that for us in the industry as well. Like take, mm-hmm. for example- I got this online course and I built it myself and used this platform and didn't, you know, I'm not a good online guy, right? So I just kind of threw it together. And then one day I got this email from someone saying, yeah, I was about, I'll buy it this afternoon. I just didn't have my credit card on me. And the the email made no sense. I was like, why is someone random writing me that? And I scrolled down and I didn't realize that within the platform that I had, if someone made it to the, like entered their email and number their name and everything, and then made it to the enter the credit card part and didn't complete the purchase, it then sent them an email from me, right? Saying like, Hey, what happened? Why don't you want to go through the purchase? And I was horrified. 
Like, and I know that's good marketing. And now with that platform, every month they send me a thing saying like, this is how much money we recovered for you, right? These are the three sales that we got from that system. Mm. But I was horrified. I felt like I was like, I would never do that. Like, if you don't want to buy it, don't buy it. Like, I'm not going to fucking push you into that. But it it works. It's the thing that got me sales mm-hmm. later. So it's a really hard balance for us not being, or well, for me anyway, not being a businessman, being a, you know, I'm a, I consider myself an educator. Here's my content. It's honest. So take it or leave it. You know, you want it or you don't. I'm not going to do a push and a sell on anyone. And then to see that I... I was selling, right? Because it comes from me. It comes from my email address with my name on it, right? Mm. I was like, what? I ended up going in there. When I saw that it was working, I was like, okay, well, I kind of want to keep it. But I ended ended up writing at the bottom of the emails when people get them now, it says, this is an automated email, not actually sent by me. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Hey, one thing uh, I did notice, Tyler, I was, I don't know what the content was. I was just watching something online a couple of weeks ago and it was something that you were doing and I was listening to you speaking and I thought, geez, that guy really has a gift in presentation. When you had set up, you know, like your background was good, your lighting was good, but it wasn't all that that I was impressed with. I'm just impressed with how you carry yourself when you speak. Like you've got this natural ambience that you convey your message very well and you use some excellent terminology when you're talking. And I just thought it's a shame I can't remember exactly what it was. That doesn't that doesn't resound really well when I'm trying to compliment <laughs> you so much. But um, I have watched and listened to quite a bit of your content over the years and I've thought, you know, you really do carry yourself well and you really speak well and you speak with conviction and passion when you're talking about a subject. I don't know if it's just an American thing because Americans do seem to be built for interviews. So that compliment, you know, that means a lot to me for a number of reasons. One, because I appreciate you guys and I respect you guys a lot. So, you know, anything positive you have to say always is is always very nice to hear. But like I said earlier, you know, I grew up with a really bad stutter. I actually was petrified of speaking in public until my 20s, really. Um, In fact, when I was in college, my first couple of years of college, I won an award for a piece of, of writing that I did. I was in a creative writing class. And to receive the actual physical reward, I had to go up on stage and there was a pretty decent possibility they were going to ask me to read the piece out loud. And so I just never received the award. Like to this day, I don't have the award. And it was because I was just, I was absolutely terrified of speaking in front of people because that's what happens when you have a stutter. And so I think as I grew out of it, I had a different sort of appreciation for people who could speak in public well. Like I I always really take note when I hear a really good speech or somebody has great presentation skills, you know, it was just sort of like a, like a gift, like, Oh my God, like I can actually do this now. I can actually, you know, verbalize things that are interesting to me and that I find important. Whereas before I would have just kept my mouth shut. And so it was this, a, like trying to just keep everything from just spilling out of me once I could finally feel comfortable speaking in front of other people. And then also just recognizing how awesome like the power of verbal communication can be. And so I, I do take a lot of note when I listen to other people speak of, you know, their cadence and where they insert pauses and how they emphasize specific words, because it's just something that I didn't always have the freedom to be able to do. It, you know, I'd, like I, it wasn't a choice that I had early mm. in my life. And how did you get uh, through that, mate? What was yeah, what yeah. was it that helped you get through that? You mean like how did I stop stuttering? Yeah, yeah. Is that what you're saying? I think largely I grew out of it. My mom had a bit of a stutter when she was young and she kind of grew out of it. I still do stutter at times. I'm just really good at hiding it. 
but I still do sometimes I can feel myself like I can feel a block coming mm-hmm. sort of tell when you're going to have trouble with a certain word and you'll find creative ways to work around that. But I think I largely grew out of it. I like to say that like when I discovered dog training, cause it was sort of coincided with me okay. discovering dog training and getting into that, that I was just so driven to be able to teach other people that I pushed through, but really, I just sort of outgrew it. (laughs) And, uh, but you know, I'm grateful. And, you know, speaking of the stuff that's going on in, you know, my country right now, we kind of talked about that before we hit record, but it's one of the reasons that I am a big supporter of Joe Biden. I mean, he grew up with a stutter and, and he still has a stutter. When a lot of people talk about how he has a hard time making sentences, those of us who know what we're looking at can see that he's changing his wording specifically to work around something that he would have had trouble getting out. Yeah. Okay. And so people are like, Oh, like, you know, is he going through dementia? It's like, no man, the dude has a freaking stutter, like back off. Mm. And he still has the balls to get up there and debate Donald Trump. So come on, mm. you know what I mean? So I look at that and I think that's just an amazing thing. And I, I wish when I was growing up that I knew of a public person like him that I would have had to look up to that I could say like, man, look at what this dude became, even though he, he struggled with this too. Cause it's a tough thing when you're a kid, it gives you a lot of insecurity a lot yeah. of social insecurity, you know what I mean? A lot of insecurity just about who you are. And I think that's, you know, part of why when I started to get notoriety as a dog trainer, it was a little bit addicting to me because it was just something that, you know, I always saw myself as, as lesser than because of, you know, that. And so it was just like the polar opposite. It was like, mm. you know, your first, your first time getting a little bit tipsy off beer. It's like, whoa. <laughs> 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 So yeah, so I, the short answer is yeah, I think I just grew out of it, and yeah, right. um, I appreciate words. The whole public speaking thing, I watch the difficulty that a lot of NDTF students go through it, and Pat was talking earlier on about his love and his new passion for meditation and spirituality and so forth, and I think I, I've always somewhat been that type of person, but um, it helps that I've got a colleague who's very interested in it too sort of rekindle your interest in it as well, because I think that it, it helps you feel at ease a little bit more. I think it helps quieten the noise in your head when you do feel that you can meditate on things and you can um, reflect a little bit easier, which is something that getting to the point of my story is something that I prepare all the NDTF students when they come back and do their practical block too, because there's a lot of pressure on them on their final day. And it's a day where I see an incredible amount of emotion surface where students are you know, they're nervous to the point where they want to back out. They almost want to throw up. Some people have gone and locked themselves in the car over the years where I've had to go and sit there and talk to them. It's basically like hostage negotiation to get them to come back out and, and go through it. And as I explained to them, the worst thing that's going to happen to them on the day is delay, nothing more. There's no shame tag that's going to be worn around their neck. We're not going to ring a bell and throw tomatoes at them or ridicule them or pick on them. If anything, we're all there for them. It's the same group of people that they've been with along the journey that are there, you know, clapping them on, wanting to support them. Nonetheless, it's still a very personal journey and it's still something that people still suffer the slings and arrows of while they're in that journey. But what I do see and what really fills me with passion and just makes my heart sort of lighter when I can see the relief on their face that they did it and they got through it. And not only did they do it and got through it, but they did it well. And it's a little journey that it, all of them go through. 
you know, we try and help and prepare them to get there, but it's a wonderful thing to see and it really is enlightening. And, and really, it's one of the things that drives my passion to want to teach people and still be involved in that education process to watch new people learning the start of a new journey where they, it's going to be very exciting and it's going to open so many options and possibilities to them. It's just a wonderful thing sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, meditation is powerful. I mm. think just having a, a sense of presence or a sense of self-awareness just in and of itself is such an important thing, especially in the dog training industry. I used to be much better about meditating than I am now, although I've been sort of getting into some different breathing exercises. But my mom growing up was always a member of the Zen Center in Rochester. So she was really big into yoga and, and she did some meditation. And her half-brother, my uncle Jai, he used to travel to India actually quite regularly with a, with a group of people and they had a guru in India and you know, the whole like sixties and seventies mm-hmm. um, kind of stuff. So that was, you know, I always had that in, in my you know influence growing up and then I did martial arts. A big part of my life and meditations are always a part of that. Lately I've been doing, um, I've actually been playing around with the Wim Hof mm-hmm. breathing exercises, you know, the Iceman. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been really cool. That's like a whole different thing. I've been really enjoying doing the Wim Hof breathing, it, especially, um, you know, the thing with, with trading stocks, it's a very emotional experience. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of my mentors in the stock market says, because he used to travel around the world with the uh, Chicago Board of Exchange doing like seminars and lectures all over the world. And he always found it interesting to observe different cultures. But he says, you know, the one thing that at, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, everybody reacts the same way to money. It's just, it just triggers a set of emotions and in the stock market, you know, fear and greed are the two primary emotions. Mm. And it's, it's an interesting journey. Actually, I, I always tell people that trading stocks has been one of the most powerful personal development vehicles that I've ever experienced because essentially, even though, I mean, it is essentially like you versus the other millions of traders that are out there, you know, for every time you hit buy, somebody else is hitting sell. There's somebody else that sees something different than what you see, right? Mm-hmm. If there's nobody there to, to sell when you're buying, you can't make the trade, right? Mm-hmm. But in reality, trading stocks is all, it's like you versus yourself all day long. And it really exposes your demons and your weaknesses and your, like, it, it just, it, it like highlights things and then does it in like a super quantifiable way. Because if you're, if you're ever going to trade stocks and get good at it, you have to keep like a journal of your trades and like a spreadsheet and kind of know, your PL and take notes what's working and what's not. And so it's a weird way of like quantifying the way your emotions affect things. Like one of the most interesting things is like when you're first learning, you're always advised to do what's called paper trading or simulated trading, which any any really good broker is going to have a good piece of software that allows you to trade in simulation mode as mm-hmm. though it were real money. And so basically like you have an account, usually the default is like they put $100,000 in it just as a default and you just trade that simulated money and it's just like doing it in, in, in the real world. What's interesting is like everybody does awesome trading in simulation mode. <laughs> like everybody does great. You, like you trade in a sim and it's like whew, sky's the limit, you know. And the moment you're putting your real money on the line, all of a sudden you're not doing so good. Mm. And you don't even realize why. You're trading the same patterns, the same setups, this and that, but somehow it's not working. Right. Or like you can pay for services where they'll send you a text message every time they, they place a trade. And it's like the person who's sending you those text messages is like, yeah, like my account's up 60 grand this year. I'm doing great. And you're like, man, I've been following all your trades. How come I'm down? Right. Like you don't realize these like 
you may be cut out of a trade slightly earlier because you got a little bit nervous or something. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. these little things that you don't even realize. And it just, it's so quantifiable in a way that nothing I've ever experienced can like quantify the impact your emotions have on your perception of the world. Like you can look at a chart and say, oh, that's a beautiful setup. I'm going to enter here. This is where my target's going to be, blah, 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 blah. And then the moment you put the money in, like the moment you hit buy, you look at that same exact chart and you go, wait a minute. Now I don't know. <laughs> like, uh, I, don't, mm, I don't feel so good about this. And it's like, you instantly look at the same exact thing and it feels totally different to you and learning to kind of manage those emotions. Cause they can be quite powerful, especially when you, you have a bit of money on the line or if you're up a lot of money, you know, and you're like, man, can I squeeze out a little bit more or whatever it is. And I've actually found that cause there's a physiological experience that goes along with that, right? Like anytime you're feeling a strong emotion, there's a big physiological experience and the Wim Hof breathing really like I can feel it. Like I can physically feel it, like reset my physiology, like my hormones, like mm-hmm. the hormones that my body is like firing off actually change when I do those breathing exercises. It is really unbelievable. It's really, really incredible. And so I started doing it like, especially anytime I started to feel high levels of stress, mm-hmm just running through, you know, doing like, you know, three or four rounds of his little breathing exercise, which is basically you're just breathing really intensely in and out. And then you do an exhale and then a long hold basically for as long as you can. But he starts with like 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And then after the long hold from an exhale, you do an inhale with like a 15 second hold. And when I first started doing this, um, because when I work at my desk, I have a standing desk. And so I'd be standing up and I'm like, you know, literally like charts are in front of me. I'm in a trade or whatever. And I would do this and I would do like a guided version. You can get it on YouTube for free, right? Mm-hmm. With him actually narrating it. And I would start to like, like my fingers would tingle. Yep. My legs would start tingling yep. and I would get a little bit lightheaded and stuff. Like it was really weird. And then afterwards it was just like all this, like adrenaline that I could feel like I could like, like all the blood that had been rushing to my face was just like gone. Mm-hmm just totally gone. And I noticed that the more I did it, the less those intense emotions would arise to begin with. Like I just had a better management of that physiology to, you know, in general. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I started doing it like before, like before the opening bell of each market session, you know, nine 30 is when the stock market opens in New York time. And before the opening bell, I would just take, you know, the 10 minutes or 15 minutes it took to do three or four rounds of Wim Hof and just like totally, totally changes your physiology and something that I, I just think, you know, anything you can do, whether it's that specific thing or a different form of meditation, or if yoga really resets you or just whatever it is, man, it's, it's just so important to have an awareness of when our emotions are taking control. Mm-hmm. Right. And that can certainly happen in dog training quite a bit, whether it's working with a client and the client's frustrating you or working with a dog and the dog's frustrating you, but to be able to have an awareness and then to be able to have something that you know you can just stop what you're doing and just do this sort of ritual and help yourself to reset mentally and physically and emotionally. But it's been a really powerful journey. For me, that's what the stock market has been. It's been this, it's you versus yourself. And so it forces you to really, really be keenly aware of, mm. man, like you aren't in as much control of your decisions as you think you are, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and just having that like awareness is it's something, man. It's Jeez, that really sounds something. like something B.F. Skinner would say. 
For sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. I but think- there is like, like a lot of the people that are like the, the, like, you know, the mentors in the stock market world have a very like Zen presence to them. Mm-hmm. So it's the same kind of thing, right? It's just being able to cultivate that sort of calmness and stability and that sort of like center point within yourself is I think something you have to do to be excellent at any craft, really. I mean, if you talk to any like master craftsman in anything, they tend to be like, you know, a very kind of centered person, right? Their focus can go fully into whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's been a good vehicle for me to, to sort of recognize those, those traits and do something about it and, and quantify it. Cause I'm a very analytical person. Those who follow me as a dog trainer know I'm a pretty analytical kind of guy. So to have an ability to like quantify my emotions effect on things is it's like a kid in a candy store for me. Yeah. Well, now you're in my wheelhouse. Cause I, <laughs> I've been on the Wim Hof for years. I started uh, maybe five years ago. Um, okay, wow, yeah. And then dropped it for a while. I actually went unconscious on my first breath hold with Wim Hof. Like I'd never, I just had zero desire to breathe and just went out and then kind of came around to it and was like, oh shit, like I just was unconscious. And That's I've never so done real. that since, but that was my first time ever doing it. I dropped it for a few years and I'm back onto it now and sort of have my own kind of adaptation that I've just found kind of works a little bit better for me. And I just finished reading uh, a few months ago, James Nestor's book, Breath, which is, oh. it explains sort of Wim Hof is Tumo. So it sort of predates him. And he explains that, like that's several thousand years old, and, but it's very interesting. And I think what you're talking about there, I've found that especially helpful. Like I don't deal in stock, so that doesn't, it, it applies to life in general. Exactly. Is I think that one thing I like about the meditation of Wim Hof style is during the breath hold, I think what's difficult in a lot of meditation for people, and certainly we've spoken about this a lot on the podcast because we talk about it in regards to the box work that we teach is like clear your mind, focus on one thing. And and that's sort of the generic form of meditation is that, mm-hmm. but the Wim Hof style is you're meant to explore your thoughts. And so you're free to just run wild. And what I have sort of, enjoy doing it in that is it's a separation from the ego. So you get to watch your ego and like, you can almost imagine it being like playing a first person shooter video game where your avatar is your ego and you let it run around during the breath hold and it can think about whatever it wants to and can do whatever, but you're the awareness behind that. And you, you can then watch these things play out and sort of say, Oh, that's interesting. Like, and you can have these fascinating and wild adventures in your own mind and they might be a realistic scenario or a completely unrealistic scenario you might paint like a picture of you know a real life example of something that might happen and you follow your ego through that and then afterwards your ego and your awareness can then consult and say all right if that were a real scenario would we do that right like that would we both be happy and by both i mean you yourself would we be happy to let that play out would we be happy in that scenario or if not and and if yes then we go okay cool like when that happens that's what i'm going to do and what i find is it almost always is a real life scenario that happens within the next few days when you have a real session like that Mm. and then if you'd not then you go okay like i'm glad i've rehearsed this and i let my ego make a bad decision and my awareness of myself then knows I don't want to do that. I've been through it and I simulated the consequences almost exactly like you're talking about with your stock market simulation there. You get to like, like do it uninhibited, right? 
Like, you know, you, you imagine a, a conversation, you know, a good one is someone questioning you on something, you know, for sure. Right. And so you're like, Hey, fuck you during your meditation. You can be like, how dare you? And then you can afterwards go, Oh, I, I'm totally, that made me feel really uncomfortable. I'm never going to do that. And you play it out and you get to see what would happen and then make a good decision afterwards and be like, no, I don't want to do that. And that's what I really like about the Wim Hof stuff is that you you're not meant to clear your mind. You're meant to follow your thoughts and let them play out. And I find that really very achievable for anybody really like, like, mm -hmm. you know, anybody yeah. can get started in that. And as you say, that shit, like even Wim explains himself, he's like, I've actually got nothing to sell. You can buy his app and you can go yeah. to his live events, but there's actually nothing to sell. <laughs> it's like, this is, yeah. first of all, I didn't invent this. I only made it popular. And second of all, there's actually, there's no special mat you need to do this on. There's no special wristband with a hologram in it that will make you any better <laughs> at this, right? Like there is nothing. Yeah. It's just breathing. It's been around for 2000 years or more. Yeah just go ahead and do it. And, and all of his stuff, like, of course there's paid versions, big plug for Wim Hof, but it's life changing sort of stuff. I think everybody should look it into is, it. Yeah. There's yeah. paid versions. You can get his app and you can pay for all those kinds of things, but there's free guided ex explanations Tons of it all of on stuff. YouTube. Yeah. It's all there. You don't need to yeah. ever hand over a cent. What I really appreciate about it too, is there's no belief system. There's just no leap of faith. It's like, just yeah. do, do X. Right. And I always say like, even in dog training, I say good dog training shouldn't require a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. You know, like a, like a good dog trainer, they should explain what you're doing, why you're doing it. It should make sense. You shouldn't have to like, just believe. I mean, there's some trainers out there that you have to just believe what they say. Right. Like, yeah. and I don't know, man, good dog training shouldn't be like that. Yeah. And that's what I appreciate about, you know, like, because you know, I've gone deep into spirituality and in, in different realms. In fact, like my degree is in philosophy and, and where I got started there was like philosophy of religion. So, and I used to explore Buddhism and, and the part that I always got hung up on, like there was a point where like, I really wanted to be a Buddhist because I, I really loved the, the idea of like that sort of Zen presence. Right. But I always got hung up on like, yeah, but I'm just naturally sort of like an atheist. Like I'm naturally a yeah, skeptic. Yeah. I believe way too much in science and the observable world. Like I just, I have a really hard time just believing something because somebody 10,000 years ago said so. Mm -hmm. So what I love about Wim Hof is that there's just none of that. Like there's none, it's a very spiritual experience. Don't get me wrong, but it's like, I mean, the dude has had scientists studying his body for like however many years, right? Like they put him in an ice chamber and have all kinds of electrodes hooked up to him. Like you don't have to just believe what he says. Like, They've measured it. Yeah, <laughs> you know the E. coli I mean? thing, was and the, you can just feel amazing. it for yourself. I mean, the very first time I did it, like I said, my body temperature rose, my fingers were tingling, I yeah. was like lightheaded and weird feeling. I mean, you just do it, and the, the, you don't have to believe anything. Like, just do it. The you funny know? thing about Wim, I great. think, is like he doesn't really understand the science of what he says. So, uh, quite a lot of the yeah. quite a lot of the things that he says are actually scientifically inaccurate. Like, the reason it works is not necessarily the reason he, in the past, yeah. has explained. I think people have worded him up now, and he sort of explains it a yeah. little bit differently. But so, one of the things I love about Wim was I think. It's one of the Dutch universities just got so sick of him making outrageous claims and were like, you know what, mate, you think you can heal yourself of anything? How about we inject you with E. coli and you just use your magic breathing technique to fix that? And so they did. And 15 minutes later, there was zero trace of it in his body. And then they were like, 
oh shit, now we have to figure out how you did that <laughs> because that yeah, really yeah. shouldn't be possible. And he can do that himself and he's also trained other people to do it as well. It's not like he has some like magic capacity to do that. They gave him, I think, four days or something like yeah. that to train other people to do it and they were all able to do it as well. Wow. Um, yeah, oh, it's it's amazing stuff. He's taking um, people on those like mountain climbs where he's like, I'm going to take a group of people to the top of – you know, mount whatever, wearing nothing but shorts and boots. Yeah. And he takes like 70 year old guys with diabetes and heart issues. And they're able to like, after training with him for a couple months, they can climb some snowy mountain wearing basically nothing. Mm. Um, you know, it's pretty remarkable stuff, but yeah, so that's been, that's been kind of my, I mean, I'm, I've only been doing it for a few months to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but it's been a nice sort of re-entry into that world. Cause I, I used to meditate pretty religiously. Like I used to have like a little schedule I would keep. And I always wanted to do at least three times a week. And, um, I had like a whole kind of routine I would do. And then I sort of got away from it. I mean, part of it's kids, right? Like kids, Mm -hmm. especially when they're really young, they eat up a lot of your time. And by the end of the day, you're just exhausted. And there's all these things you would love to do, but then you're just like, no, I'm just going to sit on the couch and read or Mm -hmm. watch 30 minutes of something before I fall asleep. Um, but yeah, I really, I've really been enjoying the Wim Hof stuff and I can just see the applicability of it to so many different disciplines. You know, um, I can, I can, I can absolutely say and, and measurably so that my trading has improved since I've been doing it, but I can see how your dog training would improve. Your relationships will improve your, Everything. whatever you do is probably going to improve. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Thinking on meditation just quickly. I've been dabbling with meditation on and off for years and it started when I was a kid and I started uh, martial arts. One of my mentors back Mm -hmm. then, he was an ex-Vietnam veteran and he found to help quieten the noises in his head that meditation was really the key. And he stayed in Vietnam for quite a, a period of time after the war and after everything. And, you know, he said that one of the guys that was over there taught him how to meditate and he used to show us how to do it. I never really got it like it never really like he gave me a book called the tale of meditation i think i've still got it in my library and i never really got it i tried to do it but i never really grasped what true meditation was and i remember quite some years ago now i've talked about this before that i got a pretty severe case of depression and anxiety and i was barely sleeping like sleep was just a long lost friend i just never never really got to do it well anymore I remember I was researching online about, I'd tried a, a bunch of things and I, I got these CDs from a guy called Paul Shealy and he sort of plays this brainwave. It's kind of like a, a resonance that it, you listen to it and you can hear these chimes going on, but you can hear this resonance in the background and it's-, it's Is works. it like the binaural beats? Is that kind Yeah, of it's kind about? of like that. So it works on a frequency and I kind of thought, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I was doing it and I kind of thought, oh, this is woo-woo. And I'm sitting at my desk and I'm listening to it and I'm closed my eyes. I'm in the dark and I've got my headphones on, you know, and I had my sort of arm slumped on my desk. And <laughs> the next minute I've just gone bang and head butted the desk. Like I was so chilled out that I just relaxed completely. And my, I just slipped through my hands and just gone smash and just head butted the desk. And I've kind of thought, I had a, such a negative response to it at the time. And I kind of think, oh, this, you know, what the hell's happened? And I've kind of walked up and run around the room like a chicken with my head cut off. But <laughs> I mean, I've got to give you this stuff credibility. It really did work. And it sort of, it mm-hmm. increased my sleep from three hours a night to about six hours a night. Yeah. 
Those binaural beats can be very powerful, but I think one thing I didn't understand for a long time was that you have to use headphones because it's yeah. different frequencies yeah. in different ears. Yep. And so people would yep. say, I oh, listen to this and I'd put it on speakers and I'd be like, this is fucking torture. This sounds horrible. Mm. And it, like, this is actually making me uncomfortable. Like this is making my ears itchy. This is horrible. And then it wasn't until I did it with earphones and I was like, oh, I'm a moron. Like I wonder how many people are doing this and saying, it's torture. It sounds terrible without realizing the, you've got to use headphones. The one I was listening to sounded nice because it had actually like the Chinese singing bowl sort of yeah, yeah. Um, oh, there's heaps meditation of chants and everything. And it was actually quite pleased, but I swore by it. Like it really helped yeah. me reverse a condition that I could not get myself out of. Yeah, yeah. And then I bought the Muse Band, which is a kind of like forced meditation. And for me, it worked. It got me into mm-hmm. a meditation zone. Yeah. That's the one that you wear like on your yeah. forehead, right? Yep. Kind of. Yep. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. I was hat. able yeah. to completely blank out and- um, I mean, the, the inner monologue that's in my head all the time, every single day, when I'm in proper meditation with that, it's gone. Like there is no sound in my head whatsoever at complete wow. peace. And the only other time that I experience that properly is when I'm on my motorbike. There are the only two times in my life that that monologue stops completely is when I'm doing the muse band, when I'm disciplining myself to do it right, which comes with a breathing exercise as well. And it also, when I'm on the bike, I can't hear the noise. Different things for different people. Well, that's it for the meditation yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stock training. <laughs> but I think medita- it's interesting. Yeah. It, it is because, like, it's something that everyone can benefit from. And, and it's a big, relevant part to your story, Tyler, as like your progression through the career and industry. Especially for this year, though, for yeah. people for this year, like getting yeah. through this year. You know, I mean, there needs to be a lot more peace and love and spirituality from what this year has produced in people. Yeah. It's been a huge part of my year, is mm. really diving deep into that. And, Anyway, that's another topic. But, mate, one thing I've been thinking about the whole time since we started talking and you saying that you took a step back from your business is what is it – describe to me the scenario where someone books in their dog and they say, look, this is what's going on with my dog and this is what I want to achieve that makes you say, I'm taking that one or I at the the minimum want to sit in on that lesson or like what is it that is your passion like that? Like I know you've stepped back from the business, but what is it that really spins your gears in dogs? Is it someone training something to do something or a particular problem that you're like, no, no, I want that in my life. That's Mm -hmm. where I'm stepping in. That's a great question. So most of the time where I do sit in lessons, it's at my staff's request. It's mm-hmm. like one of my trainers comes to me and they say, I, I got a really tough lesson coming up. I, it would make me feel so much more comfortable if you were there kind of thing, right? Or I'd, you know, I'd really love your input or whatever. But when I really want to take a dog on, it's going to be one of two things. One, it's going to be like something that I'm, I'm I, like, I just know like, man, like if like this is the dog's last shot, like I, I really got to be there. Mm-hmm. Or I just know it's going to be pretty challenging for my staff. I'm, it, it's more out of like sympathy for them. Um, that I'm like, you know, I want to be there because I, I don't want to lay this burden totally on on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. But usually, it's when I it's the combination of a tough dog situation. But what what really makes me want to be there is the client. When it's a client that is like very clearly from the outset, the client is all in. Like they are all in, one hundred percent. They don't care. They're going to listen to what I have to say. They've got to, you know, like they're just in it 100%. That's what makes me want to be more involved. There's nothing that makes me not want to be involved, like a client that's only half in it, Mm -hmm. you know. But if it's like a a tough dog case that's like, man, like 
this could be the dog's only shot. Like, you know, this dog might have to get euthanized if this doesn't work out or, you know, this dog might go back to a shelter or whatever it is. And then you couple that with a client that is just all in, I'm there 100%. Like that's going to get me 100%. So it's not so much, I mean, it's rarely like teaching a dog to do something because you don't get that kind of same sort of emotional, like I'm 100%, like this needs to happen from the client generally. So usually it's going to be a behavior problem, but that's where my heart's always been. Like I always say too, like with, you know, as far as me sort of withdrawing a little bit more from the, the more like hands-on dog training, there's parts of me that wish I was more interested in competitive dog training and that kind of stuff. Cause mm-hmm. that could be an outlet for me, but it's just never been where my heart is. My heart's always been in the, you know, helping dogs, with behavior issues. So yeah, you couple that with a, a really like awesome client and that's what gets me there. It's really more the client than anything else. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Yep. I'm hearing you. I'm the same with, it's not just clients for me. It's also staff for me as well. You know, like when I can see that I've got a staff member that not only likes their job, but also still loves training their dog after hours and so forth. Like I pay attention to all that sort of stuff because it resonates with me where their heart is in the business. Like some people just see it as, Oh, this is just a nine to fiver. You know, just come to work, do the job, but, you know, watch other people and it's like, nah, I love this. You know, like I'm invested. I I want it all. That's a lovely thing to see because it's not just something that they're sort of thinking, you know, like I like it, but I don't love it. And it's the same with clients as well, as you mentioned before. I love to see when people are all in and, you know, like they're just, I wouldn't say, oh, well, it is a part of desperation because I've seen people desperate before, like they've come here and they're just desperate for answers because they've been elsewhere and it's just not working and people are giving up on them. And, you know, when you do spend time with them and you can give them a glimmer of hope, the appreciation that they extend towards you, there's nothing like it. That is kind Mm -hmm. of euphoric sometimes when you see that, like you just think all the money in the world right now. And I, I know I'm saying that sort of tongue in cheek sort of thing, but all the money in the world right now almost isn't comparable to this moment right now. Like you just feel so you can feel the gratitude, you can feel the love, and you're just really present at the time. It's kind of hard to explain, but I guess euphoria is the way that I I explain it. I do get a euphoric feeling from it. Now, I read something interesting the other day. It was like a meme on Facebook, and it was – I'm going to butcher the quote, but it was a quote from some – like it was the Pope or some other spiritual leader, and it was talking about how, like, you know, flowers don't smell good for themselves, right? Like trees don't emit oxygen for themselves, like all these different things, you know, and it was like, there is no, there's no living thing on earth that does what it does purely for itself. Like we are all here to serve others. That is like every creature on earth, plant or animal is its whole purpose is to serve others. It does what it does to serve others. And that was like, it was such a powerful thing. I remember my grandfather passed away two years ago and it was a really interesting time you know, I was going through a lot of stuff and, and I was really close to him. And when I went to the calling hours, you know, for his funeral where everybody can show up and, you know, you know, he's there and our family's there, the line, like the funeral house was supposed to close. They had to keep it open like over an hour extra because the line was like wrapping around the building. And it was all these people that were coming up to us, the family members and sharing, you know, why they showed up actually even, um, you know, some people that were like quite surprising, uh, Lou Graham, who is I like the lead singer from foreigner showed up. Wow. He's, he, uh, he's local to our town. It's not like he you know flew in from Hollywood or anything like that, but I didn't know that he even knew my grandfather. I knew he knew my dad, 
but I didn't know he knew my grandfather. And it's like all these people, people that he had worked with. And what was interesting to me was my grandfather professionally was the service manager for a car dealership. So he was the manager of the, the service center. But it was like all these people that would come like that. They were like, you know, 25 years ago, your grandfather hired me and nobody else would. And he gave me a chance and he coached me along. And now I've got a house and a family and I wouldn't be where I am if it weren't for your grandfather. And it was just like, man, like he really was like in all aspects of his life. He was the service manager. Like everything he did was to serve somebody else. Mm. And that's why at his funeral, the line was like all these people I'd never even met before. People, the guy who bought my grandfather's house when we had to move my grandparents out and into a home showed up because my grandfather <laughs> left an impression on him. Wow. It was like, oh my God. And like, that was when it really hit me that like his title of service manager was so much more than just, he was the guy who made sure that your oil got changed properly, yeah. you know? And it's exactly what you're saying, Glenn, about like when you, when you've really helped somebody who you know, it really matters to them for whatever reason, whether it's because their mm. dog is struggling with a behavior issue or because they want to be a dog trainer and like, and they feel it from the inside more than anything else. And you've helped them to get there. There's a sense of euphoria that comes that you wouldn't get from yourself getting yourself to be a dog trainer because you wanted it. It's like when you, when you can help somebody else get there, mm. it's totally different. And, and that, you know, I guess kind of circles around to even what I was saying in the beginning, like, I'm just so grateful to be at a point in my career where I don't feel that same sense of ego in it. Like I don't care about being in the spotlight anymore and how liberating it is. Mm -hmm. But there, there's a totally different sense of peace when your focus is on others, right? Supporting the people around you rather than focusing on yourself. And I, for so much of my career, the focus was on me, right? It wasn't health. Like I think like I just wasn't in a healthy place. You know, I, I feel so much better with where I am now. You know, and I think that that all kind of comes together. Are you all right yeah. to talk about that some more? Is that something you're okay to explore? Yeah, or? totally. Yeah. So, like what was that? What was it that was a trigger and a catalyst for that? Like what? what sorry, let me on? rephrase. Like what made you realize you were having a problem? Because usually sort of in the, in the spiraling growth and that sort of thing, you're just focused on the next task. And mm -hmm. I imagine that's probably what it was for you. Okay. Like, you know, I'm growing and I'm doing more events and the demand is there and I'm making more money and all the things. What was it mm -hmm. that made you instead of looking forward, stop and look backwards and go, fuck, I don't like any of this. One was I was, I was severely burning out, like really severely. And a lot of things that I was finding joy in, I wasn't. And, and along with that, like Glenn, I, I fell into a very deep depression. That was part of why I took those few months off of work. I fell into a really deep depression and, you know, I had to start seeing a psychiatrist and I had to get on medication and, and then I also got diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, which I came to realize like had pervaded so many areas of my life that I didn't know because like so many people, you think of obsessive compulsive disorder as like the guy who has to flick a light switch on three times mm -hmm. before he leaves every door and it can come in so many different forms. And so when I started to work through that and come to that realization of how, you know, I can get very obsessive about things and I think in, in some ways it serves me well, you know, in some ways my obsessiveness is what led my career to where it was because when I get interested in something, I go like 110% in it. Mm -hmm. But it's also what has made certain relationships difficult for me. It's, it's what I think has made at times me a difficult person to work with from like, you know, my staff's point of view. It just really forced me to step back when all that stuff started to become in my own awareness. 
And, and, and then, you know, part of getting it in your own, like own awareness is you can start then getting it under control mm-hmm. and seeing it from that third person, you know, when you don't even know, when you don't even realize it, you know what I mean? It, it's hard to kind of get like an outsider perspective on it, to step back and watch your ego, sort of like you're saying with the breathing exercises. But the depression was, was heavy and that, you know, that time away from work was really important. There was a point where I was ready to throw in the towel. I was actually, I was ready to sell the whole business. Like I, I was so, I just felt so defeated and I just felt so disinterested in it all. And I had to step back and say, okay, what would it feel like if I wasn't there? You know, what would it feel like? Would I miss being there? I I sort of came to realize, you know, that there's these parts of it that I don't miss. There's these certain aspects that I just don't miss at all, but boy, would I be bored if I like sold, like, like, what would I do? Like, even if I was the best stock market trader in the world and I was making millions of dollars, like I would just be bored as shit, (laughs) you know, like I I would miss, you know, having that sort of, you know, intellectual stimulation and being around people. Like I would have no outlet. I've always been a bit of like a, like a loner type person. You know, most of my life until I was married, I just lived by myself. I didn't have roommates. So uh, I'm not the kind of person that seeks out like social circles a lot. So if I didn't have like my business is my social circle. That's my family. You know what I mean? And without that, I would just feel kind of lost. I felt like, so it's like, how, how do I need to make this shift? How do I need to do this so that it can work for me rather than against me? Cause at the, at the time it was working against me. It was really, it was killing me. Like on the inside, it was killing me. So yeah, it was just a matter of like Amy, who's my manager now was very supportive through that whole time. I, I was very open with her about what I was going through. She was one of the few people that I, I spoke to at the time about it. And she took a lot of burden on her shoulders. I'm uh, forever grateful to her for helping to give me the space to figure all of that out and continuing to give me the space to push my career where I, I can feel a bit more healthier in it. But yeah, so, it was. Mate, can I interrupt for was, a second? Because I had a question I was yeah. about to ask, but I think you might have answered it. Like when you identified you had an issue, what was your first action step at that point? Because, you know, I think that there's probably a lot of listeners that are mm. in a similar position. And when you can identify it then, was it, it sounds like you just answered my question in asking for help. Was that, that's your first action step or was there something yeah. else? No, the first action was texting Amy and saying, Hey, can we meet for lunch? <laughs> Basically. Right. And me just sort of laying it on the table for her. That was the action step was I, I knew I couldn't kind of do it alone. I knew I needed somebody to keep things running. I mean, that was even before I took the couple months off, I, I sat down with her. I needed to know that she was going to be cool with it. And, you know, and luckily I already had the business in a place where it didn't need me as much as I had forced myself to be in it. You know what I mean? Like it, it could have, it was one of those things where like, sometimes I almost felt like it was better when I wasn't there. Like the staff collaborated better when I wasn't mingling in it all the time with my obsessive compulsive nature. Sure. There's a line in a rap song that I like always sticks out to me. It's a guy named Aesop Rock. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he's mm-hmm. a, he's been around since the early 2000s. I've been listening to him for a long time. So he's like my age, like he's in his 40s now. And he's very poetic in the way that he raps. But he's got this track on one of his recent albums where um, the whole thing starts out with his neighbor calls him while he's on tour to tell him that she found a mushroom growing in his car. And he says, you know, I don't know what made her more alarmed that or the fact that I didn't really care, that I wasn't really surprised. And it kind of goes to this whole thing about um, like the disgusting squalor that he basically lives in on a daily basis. And he's talking about how his houseplants don't stay alive. And then like he goes on tour and comes back and they're like thriving. He's like, it's it's weird knowing life thrives more when you're absent. 
And I I hear that line and like sometimes that's the way I would feel about my business is like it's not just that like I need to separate myself, but it's actually like the business as a whole, like the staff can only grow when I like I got to stop occupying space with it so much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So Mm. I came to that realization as well, where it was sort of mutually beneficial and I I can always be there and be supportive. Like even like if I'm going to spend three hours in the morning trading the futures market. I do it at the training center. Like I'm physically there. So if somebody needs me, I'm there, you know? So I had to kind of give myself the permission almost like the business was already at a place where I could do it. I just had, I just had a hard time giving myself permission Mm -hmm. to like step back. And then, you know, knowing also that I had somebody there who I could trust that I knew was competent that was like the huge, like a huge burden off. And it was great. I mean, my staff was amazing. I took two months off of work. I might've gotten like three phone calls from them in the entire time. I mean, they just did incredible during that time. And that was important for me to be able to see as well that they could, they could handle it without me. And I didn't have to be, you know, it didn't matter if they didn't do things exactly the way I would have done them. Cause that was kind of one of my things was I get so frustrated if something didn't go exactly the way I would do it. And then I would be you know, not purposely so, but unconsciously so, probably a little bit negative with the staff. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Instead of helping to uplift them, it was like I would express my frustration in a way of telling them everything they're doing wrong instead of helping them do things right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which totally. is not a, a healthy way to manage people. Yeah. I'm imagining so. it as though like you're occupying space that they needed to grow. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's absolutely right. So yeah, that was, that was all kind of part of it, but it was, yeah, I was breaking down. Like I was really breaking down. I was in a very dark place and I don't ever want to go back there. Like I've, I've dealt with anxiety in my life. This this was the first time in my life that I had dealt with depression Mm. and it was such a foreign experience to me. It, it, it really is, isn't it? And it's hard to explain. Like you can hear people tell you about it and you sort of nod your head and say, oh yeah, yeah. Maybe I've, I've experienced that before, but it really is. It's like walking your life through quicksand and never really knowing when your head is going to go completely under. And you're sort of yeah. always mitigating the depth of that quicksand from a day-to-day basis. And it's interesting listening to you talking about this, mate, because I think it's a very conflicting state to be in because there's a lot of vulnerability that opens up to admit that this is happening to you. Because you feel, I don't know if you do, but I felt that I was very weak by admitting this to people when, in fact, mm-hmm. I think it was one of the strongest things I ever did was opening up to people and saying, I need help. I'm not right. And I need to recorrect myself with your help. And, you know, yeah. th- that was an amazing journey for me to go on. And I really, I'm, I guess there's a lot of people that have depression and still have and have talked to me over the years about it. And, you know, I really feel for them because I I was very fortunate to get through the other side of it where other people have been dabbling with it in and out through most of their life. I think the wonderful thing is, is they're still hanging on and they're still reaching out and trying different things and still allowing themselves to be vulnerable with people to say, listen, you know, some days I'm not going to be a wonderful person to be around. But I'm, I am trying and I really appreciate that about, you know, when we talked about clients who are all in and all invested, when you are dealing with that, when you do have that ball and chain constantly dragging behind you, but you're still fighting day to day, I've got nothing but love and admiration for people who are really still trying to push forward and still trying to find their way to cut through that process. Yeah. 
and it really is a fight. I mean, it really mm. is like a, it's it's one of the hardest battles you'll fight in your entire life. That's for sure. Yep. Mm. Heavy topic, guys. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> what are you reading at the moment, Tyler? Oh man, I love that question because the reason I, it's this so weird. I used to never read fiction like ever, and then like, like I just didn't hold my interest. Mm. I read Game of Thrones. You know, yep, I found yep. that interesting. That was yep. like the that was like a big deal. The fact that I read that whole series, because especially fantasy, I have recently discovered that I thoroughly enjoy reading thrillers, like yeah, right. murder mystery thrillers. Okay. So I just eat through them. Like I read them so fast. So I just read Gone Girl, which was turned into a movie. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, Fascinating. Movie. I never saw the movie, but the book was incredible. Mm. And now I'm reading this book called The Whisper Man, and it's really kind of creepy. It's like a good book for around Halloween time. I've had it for less than a week. I got it from the library. And I think I'm like more than halfway through it. I'm like 200 pages into it in like four days. It's I can't put it down. So I've just been I've been totally off of reading. I had to take a break from reading dog trainery stuff. And then I have really had to take a break from reading stock market stuff because I was going real deep into that. I find that reading thrillers because they hold my attention. They're great. But especially before bed, I, I fall asleep so much easier. I used to read nonfiction before bed, so my brain was working too hard. You know, like I'd be thinking about work. If I was reading dog trainer stuff or if I was reading stuff about the stock market, I'd be thinking about, geez, how can I apply that to make a million dollars yeah, someday, yeah. right? So reading some fiction before bed has been really good for my sleep. But yeah, I've been loving I've been loving these like psychological murder books. It's great. <laughs> that movie Gone Girl, that's top three most terrifying movies I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Like I'm not yeah. I'm not scared of things that you might be like consider scary, right? Like, oh the spooky ghost, like fuck that. And then like the guy Human with the behavior. chainsaw, I'm like, fuck yeah, the guy with the chainsaw. That's amazing to me. Like mm. that's that's fun. Yeah. But it's like someone could psychologically destroy you over a long period of time. Without life. you realizing, like just, oh, yeah. Man. So like that, Gone Girl. Uh, there's a movie called Swim Fan that I was genuinely terrified of. Nah, it's no one in, interesting in Swim Fan, but it's just about a guy who this girl destroys his life. It's similar to Gone Girl, where he just doesn't want to go out with us, and he he's excuse to her is I'm too busy. So she goes, oh, too busy. <laughs> it just destroys. Yeah. So he's not busy. He's got no time for anything. And the Joker, the latest one, because oh, yeah. all of them are super oh, realistic. I haven't seen that yet. Oh, yeah, oh, that oh you got to say it. Yeah, because there's nothing, yeah. there's nothing outrageous in it. It's just a guy whose life fucking falls apart. And, and it's just, just anybody could become yeah. that person with the, you know, like it's just a, a story of sadness and he just becomes a shit cocktail of just misfortune and betrayal and lack of love and everything. I mean, it's terribly sad. I mean, I, I felt so horrible when I first saw it. Narelle and I went and saw it at the movies and we just said that is one of the best and probably the saddest movies yeah. and the most intriguing movies. Like it was just a real package of so many whirling emotions when we, we watched it. We were just silent. We just thought we didn't know whether to stand up and applaud or just walk out and think, holy shit, it was really, it, it's a life-changing movie for some people. That idea of, you know, like zigging and zagging and the change that it can cause in your life. Like there's so many in the Joker, there's so many like series of events. And if just one of them had gone differently, he wouldn't have turned into the Joker. And it's like, it's terrifying. I knew two guys. One was the head of a, the like officer in charge of a special forces unit. And the other was like the head of a criminal organization in Australia, right? They were the same person. Mm. They looked the same. They talked the same. They acted the same. 
And I think what happened, like one zigged and the other zagged, yep. right? Like they had the capacity to be each other and they were in opposing roles, right? Mm. They really were fulfilling the same task in opposing roles, both super fit, violent, passionate, me- like, you know, like everything that a leader in any one of those organizations could be, but one was fucking evil and the other was pure good. And yep. it wasn't anything to do with their genetic makeup of that. It was just life circumstance. One turned him to go that way and the other went the other. And so that's what that movie Joker kind of like, I was like, oh, this is a series of events that if it had gone a different way, could have ended up in a different person. Which is why we put so much emphasis yeah. on early socialization. Yes. <laughs> hey, Tyler, one other thing when we're talking about books, I have a small admission for you is that you were one of the people who inspired the Canine Paradigm Book Club. Oh, cool. Yeah, because of a lot of your early book recommendations in training and philosophy. Mm -hmm. You were one of the people that inspired us to to put that together. Oh, cool. Hey, that's an honor. I like it. (laughs) For us as well. So we've been chatting for a while. It's probably a good time to wrap it up. up. Mate, thank you very much for coming on and speaking so candidly. I think it's Mm. it'll be an interesting um, conversation for some people to listen to and maybe reflect on their own circumstance and situation a little bit. So thank you very, very much. It's two in a row. We had Brent do similar last week and not by design. It's just kind of how it's panned out. So again, thank you very, very much for being so open and honest. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Uh Yeah. Always enjoy talking to you guys. Likewise. Thank you very much. Anything you want to plug? What's going on? Give yourself an ad. I'll plug Consider the Dog. That's where I'm putting most of my time in these days, considerthedog.com. And it's me and a bunch of other trainers and it's just a nice resource. And then you should go to, what is it? Is it wimhoff.com? Yeah. <laughs> you plug Wim again. People will be harassing us about that, but it's, it's Wim, W-I-M, H-O-F-F, Wim Hof. Check it out. For Tell sure. him Pat and Tyler sent you. <laughs> got it <laughs> thanks mate hey that's it for another episode of the canon paradigm as always if you like what you hear please like rate share subscribe do that through whatever subscription service you download us from if you want to support the show the best way to do that is via patreon mm. uh, a few bucks a month gets you extra content there but if you wanted to buy a private jet that's possible too or the other way room so we don't have to listen room, to the yeah. mower mowing outside yeah mm. the other way to support the show is teespring glenn's just made a whole uh, swagger, packs, towels, cool wall tapestry. Yep. Thanks to Zoe, who Zoe Needy, who's uh, sent us some new graphics yeah. for that. So Zoe and Avery have been our um, massive contributors to our Teespring collection. So thank you. It's amazing. Both. Appreciate you both. Thank you both. It really is heartfelt. Yep. And if you want to get some training info, the best way to do that is group source that through the Facebook group. It's the Canon Paradigm Discussion Group. If you want to talk to me or Glenn, do that to the one of us you want to talk to. But if it's about the show, something you need us both to see, shoot us an email. We are info at thecanonparadigm.com. That's it. Goodbye.